I was trying to think of just in reflection, some of the lessons that we've learned through this series. And uh, there's probably many, I'm sure, as you go through your notes. But I have a few I thought I'd suggest tonight. The first one being that Satan is the true enemy, not the culture. The culture is the tool. Uh, The culture is for us to influence, but Satan is the true enemy. He's the one guiding the media. He's the one guiding the government. He's the one that is influencing all of these spheres that we've been looking at. He's the one behind the sexual revolution. He's the one disrupting families. And we need to recognize that he is the true enemy. I also thought about the fact that scripture is relevant to every issue. I hope that's been obvious through this series that the Bible has answers for faith and godliness. It has answers to every aspect of life. There's nothing that the Bible is silent on. There's no aspect of life that your kids come to you with and you say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about this, so we'll have to just answer this with our common sense. It doesn't work that way. Scripture is relevant to every issue. God is sovereign over every aspect of his world. Hopefully that's become obvious as well through this series. God is sovereign over every aspect of his world. It's all his as uh, Abraham Kuyper said. Another one that I think has become very relevant, uh, lies can appear true. Have you noticed that? Be careful watching the media, reading news articles and so on. Lies can appear true. That doesn't mean we go through life questioning everything and just being cynical about everything and then believing nothing and trusting no one. Uh, That didn't get Jacob very far in Genesis. And uh, Joseph was a very trusting individual. He did, it does appear that he got burned, but in the end he won because his ultimate trust was in God. And that's where our trust needs to, to be. But lies can appear true. We need to be very careful about what we discern to be true. The Christian church is no longer a safe place for truth. Have you noticed this? I think that might be the most shocking thing that I have discovered through this study for myself has been just even tonight with the subjects of abortion, for one. I was reading an article, I believe maybe today. I don't know if it was uh, an article that I was reading or I was listening to an interview between Jim Daly of Focus on the Family and Governor Greg Abbott in Texas as well. So I'm not sure if I'm getting mixed up, but uh, one of these pieces was talking about the fact that the, the American church or the Western church, let's put it in those terms, is very biblically illiterate. And many people don't even see the biblical case for why abortion is sin, why abortion is wrong. That's shocking to me. A lot of these issues like, you know, Marxism used to be, you know, the face of Satan at one time. And now the church is just kind of, yeah, let's bring it in. Maybe this is the, the model. It's shocking. The Christian church is no longer a safe place for truth. We have to be so careful who we listen to, even in the church. Ultimately, where do we get our truth from? The Bible, right? Scripture. That's where we anchor ourselves. Family is our first mission field. It's another lesson we've learned through this. You want an area to start? A place to start? Start with your kids. Start with your grandkids. Start in your home. The family is our first mission field. Sexuality belongs to God. There's another one we noticed. 
As well, justice requires truth. There's a lot of talk about justice, social justice, economic justice, environmental justice. But justice requires truth, and we need to be careful about that as well. Uh, the kingdom of God is both now and then, right? That's one we kind of wrestle with. But I thought the kingdom of God is future. Why am I so concerned about it now? But it has an aspect in both elements. The now, right now, we can influence the world. The kingdom of God is influencing the world. But the then, when it is finally uh, consummated through the coming of Christ, right? And ultimately, hopefully, what we've learned through all of this, and this is why... I'm saying I do hope that this has been an encouraging study is that in the end, God wins. We believe that. We can hold our heads high. We don't have to walk out of here defeated. In the end, God wins. Doesn't mean we won't suffer, but it does mean that in the end, God wins and God will sustain his people. He didn't call super courageous, super spiritual, super smart, super influential people to himself. I mean, just look at the disciples. He called regular, ordinary, fearful people. I was just reading actually to the kids last night before they went to bed, um, a little Bible story about Jesus calling his disciples. And the author made some comment about the kind of people Jesus was calling were just people that needed him a lot. Uh, That's pretty simple. that if you need Jesus a lot, you're qualified. And that's all you need, and he'll do the rest. So here we are tonight, and I want to start tonight, well, we'll start with prayer, and then we'll get into this. And I'm going to warn you, tonight is particularly heavy. I think we know that. We're going to be looking at speaking life in a culture of death. Um, I, I really struggled with how heavy to make it or not. I didn't know if there would be children in the room tonight. I decided on not putting up any graphic um, descriptions of abortions. We might talk about it a little bit, but I was listening to some this week that just make your blood boil. And you wonder how people can actually accept this as just an ordinary part of a civilized world. That being said, it is going to be a little bit heavy tonight, so I want you to brace for that. Before we start, we're just going to ask the Lord to help us. So, Father, we're thankful that we're here tonight. We're thankful that you are the author of life. We think of how John reminded us that in him, Jesus, was life, and this life was the light of men. Lord, you're the one who sustains life. You're the author of it. You have defined human worth and human value. That doesn't come from us. That comes from you. And we're thankful for your word that reminds us of this. We ask you, Lord, to guide us tonight, guard our hearts as we look into some some very sensitive topics. And Lord, there uh, are uh, no doubt all of us here tonight have been touched by death in one way or another. And so we do need you to guard us and, and guide us through this and be our counselor tonight and be our comforter. And uh, Lord, just uh, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds and help us to, to be able to accept truth and to receive it for ourselves. Transform us, we ask, for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we start off tonight with just a simple thought that a culture without Christ cannot lead to life. 
It's pretty clear. The contrast is pretty clear. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Yes, the government's telling us it's all for our health. They're telling us, just trust us. We are the ones who will save you. And people, of course, are running to the government and running to uh, doctors and, and science to save them, to keep them alive and so on. But if our communities and if our society is, well, if the God of this world is controlling them, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. So it should be no surprise to us when society and those who govern it and lead it are not able to keep their promises. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, what kind of life is this? This is not merely physical life, although we're going to look at physical life tonight and what it was originally intended to be. It is valuable and it is sacred. We know that. Of course, he's talking about a life beyond the grave, a resurrection life, an eternal life, a life that never ends. And that's the kind of life that all who come to him will have and will have abundantly. So the first thing we're going to do is look at this little word, compassion, because we see this a lot. Our society, Western society, loves to throw around the word compassion. In fact, the euthanasia movement in Canada, put out by the government, has entitled it the road to mercy which is just another word for compassion. Isn't that nice? The road to mercy. We're going to kill grandma and we're going to call it mercy. It's compassion. And of course, we heard this a lot during COVID. If you didn't follow the rules, if you didn't follow what they were saying, you were not loving your neighbor. You were not being very compassionate. That was the accusation that was being made to Christians a lot, that if you happen to go see your family, if you happen to connect with others, if you happen to reach out and minister in person to people, well, that was considered not being compassionate. It was considered being reckless. Well, we're going to look at what Jesus did in his compassion. I think one of the greatest stories of this is in John 11, when Jesus went to uh, the funeral of his friend Lazarus. First thing we're going to notice, just a, a few points about this right away. Uh, we're not going to look at how the story ends just yet, but I just want you to notice just a few characteristics here. Jesus did allow Lazarus to die. Well, that's interesting. So death wasn't the ultimate devastation that our world seems to think it is. Of course, our world thinks it is. They think there's nothing after death. So all you have is your physical temporary life now, and that's it. So you need to cling to it. But in John 11, we find out that Jesus deliberately did not go to prohibit or to keep Lazarus from dying, from death. He didn't. So the sister sent to him, verse 3, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. This is what's a little bit confusing. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, that seems odd. <laughs> thought he just said he loved him. I, I thought he was going to show compassion on him. 
Like go and prevent this somehow from happening. Look at verse 17. Uh, I think I have it on the screen. Yes, I do. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. Well, this is interesting. Doesn't sound compassionate to me, does it? It's not exactly what you want your 911 operator to respond with. Hold on, we'll be there in a few days. Just sit tight. Now that's, that might not be a great plan, but that's exactly what he did. In fact, in verse 14 of John 11, Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. What? <laughs> Is this the kind of counselor we want? Is this the one we call the good shepherd? Of course, this is why atheists don't like the thought of God. One of the reasons they say God can't exist, because after all, if he does, he lets all these awful things happen. What kind of a compassionate, merciful God would do that? And Jesus says, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Suffering is not the result of a compassionless God. Suffering is not the result of a compassionless God. We'll work this out a little bit later, but there is purpose in suffering. Even when we cannot see it, there's purpose in it. Well, here's the second one. I want to observe Jesus did not obey the reality, or pardon me, deny the reality of death. This is interesting. So when Jesus, in verse 33, when he saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Christians need to be marked by the same kind of facing reality of death, like leaning into the reality, not backing away from it or trying to trivialize it or trying to brush it away with you know, flowery verses and things like that. Well, don't worry, all things work for good to those that love God and so on. We, that's not what we're seeking to do in the face of death. We're going, to, we're going to respond to the reality of death. Death hurts. It does. It hurts. It's only in the face of resurrection that Paul could say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But anyone who's been through it and lost a loved one knows death stings. It does sting. Jesus did not deny the reality of death. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And just like we need to face the reality of sexuality in our culture head on, we need to face the reality of family issues in our culture head on, and we also need to face the reality of death head on. We need to be a people that are marked by not being afraid to speak of death. Compassion is marked by facing reality in all its ugliness. That's what compassion does. It sits down with your friend Job and just sits there in his suffering. Doesn't try to gloss over it, but faces it. Third, uh, here we go. Jesus wept while holding the answer. This is another peculiar one, right? Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. Not sure that it matters. It's the shortest verse in scripture. We don't believe verses were 
inspired. The words were inspired. Verses were added later on for our convenience. That's great, but Jesus wept. And it's a powerful statement. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now this is puzzling because if you know the rest of the story, you know it's going to turn out really good. That Jesus is about to raise his friend from the tomb. But before he does it, like he's weeping. This word for weeping is, is a very powerful word. He is weeping. And you wonder, why would he do that knowing that in a few minutes he's going to make it all better again? Right? This is how when our children scrape their knee, we're saying, oh, no, don't worry. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to get a Band-Aid. Which Band-Aid do you want? Do you want the Paw Patrol Band-Aid? Right? And we're, we're trying to make it all better and all go away. Jesus doesn't do that. He weeps. I wonder why he did. It's possible that he was weeping because he was grieving the sin that had caused death. I mean, he's been there from Genesis. He's been there before the foundation of the world. He saw the world as he made it. He saw what Adam and Eve did with it and what humanity has done with it since. And he's standing now right in the face of death and he's weeping at the reality of what sin has caused. That's possible. It's possible he was joining, he was connecting with his friends in their sorrow. So he's, he's linking, he's identifying himself with them in their sorrow. It's also possible that he was looking forward to his own death that would solidify our resurrection and the redemption of our bodies. It's possible he's looking forward to what he was going to have to do to put away the sin that had caused this. I don't know which is right. Maybe all are right. I love Isaiah's description of Jesus when he said, surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. It's a great picture of Christ. We don't weep alone. He weeps with us. He feels what we feel. He didn't try to correct Mary. He wept with her. And sometimes having all the answers is not compassionate. Trying to explain trials is not compassionate. Well, I'm pretty sure God has something in this for you to learn. You might want to find out what that is. That's not what he did here. He wept with them. Giving theological explanations isn't always compassionate. Quoting Bible verses, surprise, surprise, may not always be compassionate in the moment. Just sitting and weeping with the suffering is oftentimes the most compassionate thing we can do. Number four, here's the last one here I'm just going to point out is that others accused him of not being compassionate. Look at verse 37 of John 11. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? He's up to something. Well, some saw his compassion and said, man, how he loved him. Others are saying, yeah, he probably could have avoided this whole thing. I don't think he's as loving and compassionate as we all think he is, or as they think he is. And we see that, don't we? The culture is misunderstanding oftentimes the Christian these days. The culture is maligning Christians and saying, you're not the compassionate ones, we are. The church's stances against lockdowns, 
well, that has been viewed as a lack of compassion. The church's stance against abortion has been interpreted as a lack of compassion for the mother. How dare you? You don't know what it's like. You've never walked in her shoes before, right? All these lines that we hear often when we stand against abortion. The church's stance against euthanasia has been viewed as a lack of compassion for the suffering. But the meaning of compassion hasn't changed. The worldview of the culture has changed. Here we are again, talking about terms. All over again, talking about mercy, talking about compassion. So what we're going to do for a little while tonight is look at what it means to live in a culture of death. Then we're going to look at some biblical responses, uh, some, actually a biblical basis for our responses, and then we're going to look how to speak life into a culture of death. But our culture is very confused about death. Very confused, very conflicted. There's great superstition. There's a lot of irrational fear. You've probably noticed this. I've, I've you know, my last position just a number of months ago was working in an office with people. You could just see the irrational fear that they had for death it was all around them. The whole, just how they were handling uh, everything, whether it had to do with COVID. There were some that were obviously far more fearful than others and so on, but it, it's, it's obvious in our society. It's just overrun us as a society. And uh, there's, uh, at the same time as this irrational fear of death, there's this drive to, to dress it up, to make it look pretty. You know, we, we want to just celebrate life now. We don't want to actually go to funerals and uh, be in the presence of death anymore. Suicide is on the rise our public health professes to be concerned about the help of all individuals, while at the same time, almost 84,000 children were slaughtered in 2019, the last statistics I can find, just in Canada alone, making abortions the second most performed medical procedure in Canada. Are you alarmed? I think that's the same in the U.S., that it's the second most performed medical procedure in the U.S. as well. Don't ask me what the first one is right now. I could pull it up for you, but I don't have it in front of me or in my, my brain. Um, but we are specifically concerned tonight. I'm not so much concerned with going through all the different arguments. We will touch a few on abortion, euthanasia, and so on. But I do want to take some time to really look into the thought process of our culture and the worldview that is going on behind genocide and why it's justified. Now, not everyone is thinking the same thing in our culture, obviously, but there are some underlying thought processes, especially in the universities that are going on right now, that are just making this stuff far more prevalent. Of course, this is nothing new. This was true in Roman society as well. And it's very interesting that in Roman society, you had this same confliction, is that a word, going on? between, you know, killing was happening all the time, abortions were happening, infanticide was happening all the time in Roman society. But at the same time, people in, in Rome were totally superstitious of death. They didn't want to be in the presence of dead people. They had to, I forget, they had to like cleanse themselves for a day or two after they were in the presence of a dead person and so on. And the Christians kind of walked around like, they weren't afraid of death at all. They weren't afraid of handling dead bodies. They met in catacombs. They often worked in the catacombs. They did the work that Roman people just would not do. They would not, 
come close to. They were terrified. In fact, Roman citizens were often burning their loved ones in fire to make sure the spirits didn't get out. They were burning them before those spirits could get out and haunt them for the rest of their life. Very, very superstitious people. Christians, in, the, in, in contrast, were obviously revealing a different kind of culture, the kingdom of God. And they're revealing it in the fact they were not afraid of death. They actually celebrated the, what they called the birthdays of the martyrs and so on, right? The birthday, the day they entered heaven. They entered the kingdom of God. They were not afraid of death. They did not treat it like a tragedy. They treated it like it, it was a wonderful thing to be, enter, be leaving this world and going into the next, to be in paradise with Christ. However, here we are today. And the first thing I want to notice with you is that the loss of God is the loss of humanity, the loss of a sense of value of humanity. According to scripture, God is the one who defines the value of humanity. Western society used to be founded on this assumption that it was God's job to tell us what was valuable and what was not. That was his position. But over time, we got science, we got Darwin, we got Marx, we got all these wonderful thinkers that they just over, you know, took all the scientific data and said, guess what? We have all this science now. We know so much. We know so much about how the world works. We really don't need to think about God anymore as sustaining us and keeping us moving and bringing the seasons and so on. We don't need that. We have science. And uh, we talked about this guy before. Friedrich Nietzsche gave a warning about all of this, his famous line that God is dead that was uh, his famous announcement to the world. He was actually just announcing what society had already realized or thought philosophically that we no longer need God in our society. We don't need to believe in that. Science had given Western society new knowledge. The enlightenment didn't require belief in God anymore. Astronomy and biology both had revealed planet Earth wasn't that special in the universe and humanity wasn't the wasn't that special either. It was just a product of natural forces. So Nietzsche spelled out the problem. Here's the problem. If you remove God, hang on, because what that means now is that Western ethics that were once grounded on Judeo-Christian principles of a God that is the ultimate judge of all the earth, who we all have to answer to someday. He decides what's right, what's wrong, and the Ten Commandments are a standard and so on. He said, since we've removed God from society, we're all, we've also removed our basis for any kind of right and wrong, our ethics. Two, there are two main Christian uh, ethics, principles of Western civilization that now have no basis, according to Nietzsche. Here's the first one. All men are created equal. Well, that was true as long as God was on the throne, but now that God is not on the throne, Nietzsche decided that's no longer true. All men are not created equal. Some are created, or not created at all. Some are evolved more highly than others. Also, human life is sacred and precious. Well, that was true as long as God was on the throne, but now that, as Nietzsche was proclaiming, God is not on the throne, human life is no longer sacred or precious. You're just animals like everyone else. And that led to two options. What are we going to do about this, according to Nietzsche? Well, first of all, nihilism. You say, what's nihilism? Nihilism is the idea that nothing matters. Total despair. Just give up. 
We're just a bunch of animals, just a bunch of mammals roaming the earth. Why bother? There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no purpose, there's no reason for being alive. Total despair, which is exactly what Nietzsche ended his life in. He spent the last decade of his life out of his mind. The other one he thought, and this is the one we want to get to, was the autonomous Superman. This was the individual that he said would rise above nihilism and create his own secular morality. Guess who tried this? A guy by the name of Adolf Hitler and his crew. But there's one a little more recent than that that I want to uh, bring to our attention tonight. We've talked about the Marxist Manifesto. We haven't talked about the Humanist Manifesto, which was written in 1933, and I think it was updated again in something like 1973 or something. Um, But it came out from a number of uh, professors in universities and so on. The first and second, I think there were 16 different articles of, shall we call them faith, of their little statement of faith, their manifesto. The first one said that religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created, okay? So it just, it's just there. There's nothing behind it. It's just material. Nothing special about it. Second, they said that humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. So man is at last becoming aware that he is alone, they said. He, is, he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams that he has within himself. Here it is, the autonomous Superman. He has within himself the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to task. The irony, humanism, that's supposed to give us a high view of humans, right? Where all there is actually leads to a low view of humans, that we're nothing special. We're just bacteria put together in a different way than other bacteria. So we're nothing special. All right. Well, what does that lead to? Well, when God no longer defines personhood, then who does? Well, guess who does? (laughs) Humans. And only certain humans, because after all, if this is the case, then all men are not created equal. So Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, I'm going to look at him in a moment, but I've been quoting a lot from him in the last number of weeks. You've probably noticed, you're probably wondering who is this guy. I'll talk about him a little bit in a, in a minute here. I should give him some credit here. Because a lot of what you've been hearing here at Harvest, or similarly, is nothing new. Francis Schaeffer was actually saying a lot of this stuff back in the late 1900s. I think he died in the 1980s, but in the 1970s for sure, he was really, really sounding the alarm of where Western civilization was going. He was talking about sphere sovereignty back then. He was talking about government overreach. He was talking about the need for families and the need for Christians to get into politics and law and medicine and so on and influence for Christ. He was talking about all these things. But Schaefer says, with nothing higher than human opinion upon which to base judgments and with ethics equaling no ethics, the justification for seeing crime and cruelty as disturbing is totally destroyed. The very word crime and even the word cruelty lose their meaning. There's no final reason on which to forbid anything. If nothing is forbidden, then anything is possible. And Schaefer, here he is, 
Francis Schaeffer, interesting guy, he uh, graduated from university and he moved to, I think it was 1948, he moved to Switzerland after World War II and he set up a, a chalet there called Labrie. And uh, at Labrie, he, he started just teaching philosophy, teaching uh, Christian apologetics and so on. And people were coming from all over the world and learning under Francis Schaeffer and eventually it started to spread and Labrie's, the, these different uh, communities were being set up all over the world in different places, but Schaefer became a massive voice in the 20th century. Um, his, his work is still relevant. That's the thing. He's still, it's like he's speaking to us right now. It's uh, very incredible. But one of the books that he wrote was actually a response to the Humanist Manifesto and the Marxist Manifesto. He called it a Christian Manifesto. Pretty original. And uh, Francis Schaefer stated in his writings that there would be a progression in the argumentation for killing through abortion and infanticide and euthanasia and so on. And I want you to notice this progression and see if this is something you've noticed in society. First of all, it will start with compassion. We're just being compassionate, right? We're aborting these children to be compassionate to the parents, to be compassionate to the mother, and so on. And that turns to rights. The next argument that comes is these are rights. These are human rights, not based in God. Remember, they're just based on our thinking. We've come up with this. This is our consensus. Third, it leads to my rights, my rights over your rights. These are my rights. And we have different sides to these. And last, it's just pure economics. And you see that today, even with euthanasia, there's a lot of uh, you know, discussion about, well, it's just, how much money is it going to cost to keep grandma alive, right? How much money is it going to cost to keep, uh, you know, paying for the dementia medication or the Alzheimer's medications and so on? And this talk is already happening. He, he knew what he was talking about. I want to show you a little video of one of these humanist professors by the name of Peter Singer. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's from Australia. Um, he's, been a, he's been very vocal. He's actually what they call a bioethicist. So he taught, he's in Columbia University in New York, one of the places that the Frankfurt School prof, guys went to when they moved to the U.S. And uh, he, obviously he's, he's um, an atheist and uh, he believe, he's a very big advocate for abortion, infanticide, which is just the killing of babies after birth, and euthanasia. And uh, I want you to listen to this conversation. I, I'm only going to play a few minutes of it, not too much of it. Between him and Richard Dawkins, the man who wrote The God Delusion, one of the new atheists, I want you to listen to this. I wonder if this will shock you. But everything I've been talking about up till now, well, it might come up in this conversation. Let's see here. Peter, I think you must be one of the most moral people in the world. You've certainly got one of the most logically thought out ethical positions in the world. And yet precisely because of its logical consistency, you seem to get a lot of flack coming from two quite different directions. Well, that's certainly true. Um, on the one hand, I'm critical of the attitudes that people, most people in society have towards animals. I think that we don't take the interests of animals seriously enough and in a way, I think it, it's an implication of, of Darwinism that we should take them more seriously, or at least that it breaks down some of the barriers that have separated us 
from animals. But on the other hand, because I don't think that humans are, are special just in virtue of being a member of the species Homo sapien, I think that if you have humans who are, for example, uh, severely damaged at birth, um, that it's not wrong to end their lives. So I think that in some cases, uh, human beings don't have a right to life uh, because they don't have the possibility of having a worthwhile and meaningful life. And so, of course, I get flack from uh, conservative uh, moralists and uh, conservative Christians uh, from that perspective. Well, that seems to me to be completely logically consistent. I suppose there might be some people who invoke slippery slope kind of arguments and say, well, it's absolutely right that a human vegetable actually suffers less uh, from be being killed than a, than a fully sentient cow. But nevertheless, once you allow the, the barrier to be broken against sort of breaching the, the barrier around Homo sapiens, you then open the way to a slippery slope. Where is it going to end? Yes, people do make that kind of argument. Um, I'd say that, in fact, uh, we, we cross that boundary inevitably anyway. I mean, even when we redefine death to say that people whose brains have ceased to function are dead, although the organism seems to be alive, the heart beats, the blood circulates. Uh, and of course, we did that so we could take their organs and give them to others. I, I think in a way that's already crossing that boundary about the so-called sanctity of human life. Uh, and of course, we turn off respirators on people at certain points. We, we, we just don't really keep people going just because they are living human beings. So um, I think in a way we, we're already on that slope and what we have to do is make sure we don't actually slip further than uh, we want to, but I think we... Okay, I want to uh, clarify something almost immediately. Well, we'll get to it in euthanasia, but uh, he, just, he just mixed apples and oranges there. A ventilator is not there to make someone better, right? Um, it could keep someone alive, but it's, it could actually be prolonging suffering. That's not euthanasia, that's not the same thing, but we'll look at that in a few minutes. But Shocked by that? That he could, th this is a professor at a very, very popular university who writes books on these things and influences culture. Just basically saying without any embarrassment at all that human, right, human beings do not have a right to life. Interesting. And then, so we're supposed to now trust the intellectuals and the technocrats with our lives. Huh. I don't know. Okay, so Schaefer, again, says abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia are not only questions for women and other relatives directly involved, nor are they the prerogatives of a new people who have thought through the wider ram ramifications. They are life and death issues that concern the whole human race and should be addressed as such. So none of us are off the hook tonight just because it doesn't involve me. Uh, we have a job to do. All right, so what, what is the result of this? The result of this is we either dress up death or we deny it. We dress it up, make it look okay, make it look attractive or somewhat appealing, and we're going to see that, we're going to notice that, or we kind of ignore its reality and we just live as though, you know, tomorrow may never come. And we see these two realities in our conflicted culture. So on side one, no one must ever die of COVID. 
So we need to lower the number to zero casualties. We must also get carbon emissions to a zero percent soon or we're all going to die. That's on side one. On side two, babies are expendable because they may be a nuisance. The elderly are expendable if they cost too much money to keep alive or the handicapped are expendable because they cost too much money. Due to overpopulation, nature could use some relief from having less people around here. It's a very strange society that we're living in. In Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which he wrote back in, I think, the 1930s, he kind of painted this picture. And the savage, the, the character called the savage, who walks into this civilization, this dressed up, synthesized, always happy civilization, uh, he finds out that his mother was dying in the hospital and there were these brats, basically these test tube babies, children that were actually being uh, systematically trained to not care about death at all. Just in the hospital, walking around the, the, the deathbeds of these individuals, kind of looking at them curiously and what is this? What's going on? You know, and no reverence for death at all. And so the savage finds out his mother had died and he begins to weep uncontrollably in the face of death. And the nurse in the ward wonders what effect this will have on the test tube children being conditioned to trivialize death. Should she speak to him? Try to bring him back to a sense of decency? This is Aldous Huxley describing this cultural mentality, which is exactly where we're at today. Should she speak to him? Try to bring him back to a sense of decency? Remind him of where he was? (laughs) He's in a hospital ward, a palliative care hospital ward. Of what fatal mischief he might do to these poor innocents, undoing all their wholesome death conditioning with this disgusting outcry, such as grieving for the dead, for loved ones, as though death were something terrible, as though anyone mattered as much as all that. It might give them the most disastrous ideas about the subject, might upset them into reacting in the entirety, entirely wrong, the utterly anti-social way. That's exactly where our culture is. Dress it up. You don't see too many pro-abortionists showing you what abortion actually is. Not telling you that you're killing your baby. They won't tell you that. It's just a clump of cells. It's just a medical procedure. It'll be painless. It won't last very long. You won't feel a thing, right? They're trying to synthesize it, trivialize it, make it something that it's not. And that's where we find ourselves. Well, let's look for a few moments at the child sacrifice of abortion and infanticide. I'm well aware that we just had a conference on this. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, Just to notice a, a brief history, first of all, Um, In the U.S., of course, 1973, Supreme Court uh, in the Roe v. Wade, the famous Roe v. Wade case um, about a Texas statute that prohibited abortion except in saving the mother's life, uh, the Supreme Court struck it down and interpreted the Constitution as protecting the woman's right to an abortion. It was a very unjust uh, response. It was very unjust deliberation by the Supreme Court. In fact, right now, it is back in court to possibly be reversed. We can be praying about that. 
in the U.S. That's happening as we speak right now. In Canada, as of 1892, uh, the Canadian Criminal Code instituted a complete ban on all abortions. And then this man came along, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, and he did not quit. He lived till he was 90. He died in 2013. He was a Holocaust survivor in a couple different death camps. He made it out, moved to Canada. He went to medical school. He practiced medicine. And eventually he started opening abortion clinics that were illegal at the time. He was arrested, brought into court. No jury would ever convict him. They threw him in prison anyways and created quite an upheaval. He never quit. He was raided a number of times by police. He just didn't quit. He opened his first abortion clinic in Montreal in 1969. And again, he started opening abortion clinics across Canada, one after the other after the other. Why do we talk about him? Because finally his court case, he had a number of them, but his, his court case in 1988 led to the Supreme Court decriminalizing abortion, period, in Canada. And he died at the age of 90 in 2013. That's the man. I was going to show you another man. If you want to look this guy up, he's an interesting character. I, was, I wasn't going to play his video tonight. That was actually uh, Dr. Anthony Lavatino at, uh, in front of Congress testifying and describing what abortion is. It's easy to find on YouTube. Uh, he actually, if you watch the movie Unplanned, he played the abortion doctor in that movie. His story is very interesting. He was an actual abortionist at one time, an abortion doctor. He performed hundreds of abortions and uh, eventually became a spokesperson against abortion after the death of his own daughter. And one day shortly after he was performing an abortion, and of course you have to count the body parts as they come out, and as he was pulling the body parts out, this time he wasn't just seeing body parts, he was seeing somebody's daughter. And it turned his life around. It woke him up. And it wasn't long after that he quit abortions altogether. And today he speaks against it all over the place. I'm not sure if he's a Christian, what his Christian background is, what his Christian faith is at this point. I'm not quite sure. I'm sure you can look him up, but he's got quite a story and um, he's very effective in the way he speaks against abortion, something that they want to cancel. In fact, they did. They canceled one of his videos. Uh, Twitter, I think, canceled it. And um, I'm not sure, maybe Google? Maybe it was Google. I'm not sure, but I, I, I saw that uh, one of his videos had been canceled and him describing the different uh, methods of abortion, but they're ugly. I, that, that's the bottom line. If you go through, whether it's, um, you know, DNC abortion, suction abortion, saline abortions, they're all hideously cruel. There's no other way to put it. And I don't know of a better response to pro-abortionists than to say, have you ever watched one? Go and watch one and come back to me. And if you can watch that, and come back to me and say, you're for that. You're a savage. You have no conscience. It's very easy to argue, but I do want to notice a few of the arguments that come up. One of them is the forced good Samaritan. I think I actually have, yes, here it is. Forced good Samaritan. So Judith Jarvis Thompson in her book, A Defense of Abortion, presents a scenario of 
Waking up in your bed and finding yourself connected to a famous violinist, maybe you've heard this, pretty popular, who has dysfunctional kidneys and is surviving off of yours. And you're supposed, you're obligated to stay in bed tied to this violinist for the next nine months to save their life. Would you do it? And what she, her point was, you shouldn't be forced to be a good Samaritan of this individual. You don't even know them and so on. Well, there are problems because it's not a parallel. Again, it's apples to oranges. It's not the same thing. The violinist is a complete stranger. Your baby is not. It is coming from you. It might be a separate individual, but it is part of you in a sense. And every parent knows that. There's a connection. The violinist uh, as well, uh, this is not a consequence of something you did. You wake up in bed, you find yourself strapped to, you know, uh, some, a complete stranger. It's not something you did. It just happened to you. Sorry, but babies are not just something that happened to you. It's something you did for the most part. You would not be bedridden for nine months. That's a silly, silly argument. I'm pretty sure most people expecting children, unless there are some extreme cases, are able to get out of bed during those nine months. You could unhook yourself and the violinist would die of his natural causes. That's very different than an abortion where you are actively taking, actively and savagely taking another person's life. It's not even close. The next one, my body, my choice, which again, now we hear being thrown back at us about vaccines and so on. You use this argument and so on. Well, there's a very big difference between the two because the child itself has a body and should have rights to their own autonomy. The child himself inside you is a separate body. So if it's my body, my choice, then it should be the baby's body, the baby's choice. Prime Minister Trudeau, listen to these words. This is going to surprise you. Prime Minister Trudeau said this, you know, at some point, you are killing life in the fetus in self-defense, but of what? Of the, of the mother's health or her happiness or her social rights or her privilege as a human being? I think she should have to answer for it and explain. Now, whether it should be to three doctors or one doctor or to a bishop or a priest or to her mother-in-law is a question you might want to argue. You do have a right over your own body. It is your body. But the fetus is not your body. It's somebody else's body. And if you kill it, you'll have to explain. Oh, I forgot to mention that was actually Pierre Elliott Trudeau. That was not Justin Trudeau. I didn't forget to mention. See how far we've come in a generation? And he was a liberal in his time, but he was still standing up for the baby's right to live. That's interesting, even though he was not fully pro-life, obviously. What if it's rape? Here's the question. Well, it's not something I did. There's actually a story of, uh, if you want to look up Jeff and Jennifer Christie, I remember hearing their story on Focus on the Family, um, where she was on a business trip and she was attacked and pretty much left for dead. And in the, the attack, she was raped and found out a few weeks later that she was impregnated and um, called her husband to let him know. 
And he basically embraced the whole situation and said, honey, this baby is a gift from God. We are going to accept, receive this baby into our life as our new son, as our child. And they embraced it. And they have been a spokesperson against this argument because they've lived it. And in fact, he, this child, their son, has become a reminder to them that goodness can come out of the greatest tragedy. Imagine that. But the bottom line is the child should not be condemned to death because of the actions of a criminal. Because life has started as a result of a crime does not mean the child has a death sentence on their head. They've done nothing wrong. And finally, it's a fetus, not a person. By the way, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not coming across callous by saying all of these Obviously, things I've never lived and most of us have never lived. And I'm definitely not intending to make light in any way tonight of suffering. Some of these are situations of real suffering. They are. Uh, we're going to look at the Christian response to suffering in a little bit. But these are, these are real issues that people do face. Of course, they're being used. They're being hijacked. Generally, what happens is the exception to the rule becomes the rule to be used to argue for these things. But the idea it's a fetus, not a person, well, science is not on your side. So if you want to trust the science, you better go check the ultrasound. Like even Peter Singer knows that, in fact, this is what he said, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from the human sperm and eggs is a human being. And the same is true of the most profoundly and irreparably intellectually disabled human being. Do you notice that Richard Dawkins said that uh, Peter Singer is the most moral person he knows? Because, well, I, I think we can say this, he does follow through on his so-called logic from one to extreme to the other. So he is saying, yes, they're human. They're human after birth, they're human before birth. He's not denying that. What he is saying is that just because they're human doesn't mean they have rights. They're just, they're, they're nothing more than special animals. That's all we are. We're just animals. And uh, Singer still believes they can be killed. We, obviously, we, we heard that, along with disabled infants and so on. Because he believes that human's value is determined by, not by humanity, not by being a human being, but let's say by size, I guess if you're this size or smaller, you're less of a human, you're more killable. Or by development, if you're less developed as a human being, if the cells haven't multiplied enough as of yet, I mean, at what point do you have to have hands, a heartbeat and so on? You hear about the Texas heartbeat that just came out. Are they less human before they have a heartbeat? Um, their environment, whether they're inside the womb or outside the womb, or their degree of dependence. I mean, an infant after birth is just as dependent on their mother as before birth. It's no different. And yet these are the kinds of definitions that humanists are using today in our society to say whether or not a human being should be able or worthy of life. And that human being doesn't get to decide for themselves. We get to decide for them. It's nothing new. There was this God this idol in the Bible called Moloch. Moloch was set up in the valley outside of Jerusalem, in the valley of Hinnom. And it was a metal idol 
with a human body and a bull's head and an empty belly. And inside that belly, they would light a fire. From the back end of this idol, they would light a fire and make that idol, that metal, molten idol, hot, white hot. And each parent of these Moloch worshipers was to place their firstborn child in the outstretched, white hot hands of Moloch and watch the child writhe in agony until death. And this is key. The parents were not allowed to show emotion. It would not be an acceptable sacrifice if they showed any kind of emotion and the drums were beaten to drown out the baby's cries and to help the parents not show emotion as they sacrificed their child to Moloch. That is exactly the same story of our culture today. We are supposed to sacrifice our children to the state and not show emotion about it. Just give them up willingly in our worship to the state. Contrast that to Genesis 22, the God of the Bible, who told Abraham, take Isaac, your only son, up the mountain to sacrifice him. Was that because God wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son? No, it wasn't. It was because he wanted to make a point. I'm not a God like all the rest of the gods of these nations. I don't need you to sacrifice your son to me. I don't need that from you. In fact, I'm going to sacrifice my own son for you. And that's the story of the cross of Jesus and the gospel. 